0: These are exciting days. We still serve a very creative God. And as this has been unfolding, I've just been continually amazed at how God has put together some things that, in all honesty, and some of the unique things I've been praying about, that, that could never see how they could all, all the check, all the boxes could be checked. I just see God faithfully just checking off all all the boxes and, and more than I even knew and, and could recognize. I've, I've always said God has options, we don't. And Until all said and done, you, we're going to look back at this and say no human, in fact, I can already say it, no human being designed this kind of package. I've never heard of this type of relationship before, but God. Amen? But God. So keep praying. Keep your faith high. Keep excited. We're going to have questions. We're going to wonder this and wonder that. That's, that's part of change. But it's also part of growth. It's part of expansion. It's, it's part of taking new territory and new ground. So amen. Amen. But now I've lost some time, so we're, we're, we're going to jump into our, our Bible lesson for today. If someone asked you, um, what's the gospel? How would that, that make you feel? Would you feel like you're put on the spot? Would you have a ready-made answer? Would you be intimidated? Um, you may hear that question and say, well, that, that just, that's just simple. And rattle off you know, your understanding of, of what the gospel is. Um, and even if it sounds very basic, I want you to understand it's, it's a profound question. It's a big question. It's a it's a deep question. The question is going to the core of our faith. It's saying what what do you really believe? What what is really at the center of this thing called Christianity? What what is it that that's what are the non-negotiables in order for the Christianity to stand? In order for the body of Christ to exist, what what are those things that are the central truth that um that support it, that, that are at the, at the very um, core and center of it. If, in the book of Galatians, which is where we're taking our, our current series from, that's, a, that's a, a topic that the Apostle Paul is highlighting the gospel. It's a question that he's asking the people. He's, he's asking them, Let, let's take a moment, let's take a pause here, and let's think about this thing called the gospel. Um, we've entitled the series High Five, which, which stands for High Fidelity which is an industry term taken from the sound industry. And it, it simply means um, the, the replication of a sound so that it sounds exactly like the original. That, that's the goal and purpose of the sound industry, to, to take a sound over here. And when it comes out over here, you can't tell the difference, that it's, it's an exact replication. And we're using that as a launching pad into our series, saying, well, that's, that's what the life of a Christian is is to be like. That's the goal and purpose of a life of a Christian that, that we're to take the sound of Jesus, we're to take the, his, his character and his life and his message, and, and we're to replicate it to sound just like him. Not to sound like us, not to sound like an organization or a denomination, um, it's to sound like him. And, and the, the apostle John made a statement in, in not in his gospel, but in his, in his epistle. He said, as he is, as Jesus is in the world, what's the rest? So are we. As he is in the world, as the body of Christ, as his church, as sons and daughters of God, as he is, so are we. We're to be that replication of his life and his ministry in the earth. His sound is supposed to be our sound. Whatever comes out of our life, the sound of our life should sound like him. OK? We on the same page? Say yes. As long as, long as you agree, say yes, I guess. Um, let, let's as foundationally, what was, the, what was the and you don't have to answer, but I want you to think about, it. what was the first sound? What was the first sound? In the earth, And of course, if we're going to talk about beginnings, we go simply back to the, the beginning. We go back to the first book in the Bible. We go back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and it was void, and, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered, moved upon the face of the waters. And what? And God said, The first sound ever spoken into our universe is the voice of God saying, let there be light. Let there be light. And of course, the Bible goes on and says, and there was light because God said it. He commanded it. So it happened. Now, how that happened, I can't really explain to you because God didn't create sun, moon and stars until the fourth day the things that we know as containers of light or causation of light in the earth. Somehow the earth became illuminated because God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so it, it satisfied the illumination on the earth at least until the fourth day where God provided light you know, containers. But I think if we look at that for a moment, there was something else also going on. There was something else at play. I believe that when God uttered that first sound, it was also a sovereign declaration of his purpose and will, of his divine intent. I think when God said, let there be light, he also had in, in, in mind and in view the rest of the story. He, he, he was projecting what was going to unfold. In the, that was the first page of your Bible. Everything after that was built on that statement. Everything after that was built on that sound. Let there be light. The Apostle John could help us in his gospel. The first first John chapter one, or John chapter one, the first four verses. In the beginning, you know this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and his life became what? The light of men. The light that God said, let there be, Jesus is the fulfillment of. Jesus is the embodiment of. His life became the light of men. The first sound ever uttered into our world is the sound of Jesus. The first sound that ever reverberated into our universe is the sound of Jesus, the light of the world. And we see that sound just growing throughout all the rest of Scripture. It just keeps getting louder and louder. It keeps just getting repeated. It keeps getting presented in different ways, in different forms, but it's the same sound. Through creation, through the patriarchs, through the judges, through the kings, through the prophets, through the historical books, the poetic books, the books of of wisdom, through... through, the sound of the New Testament. We move into Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. They're all they're all resounding the same sound. All of Paul's letters, Peter wrote, John wrote, James wrote, Jude um, Jude wrote, all building sound upon sound, but the same sound. We go, look at look. I don't know if you have. I know we don't carry physical Bibles a lot anymore. I hope some of you are still in the habit of it, but. But this Bible, 66 books, written by at least 40 different authors over 1,500 years, and yet it cr- creates and produces one unified, cohesive sound. And that cohesive sound in its core is the sound of Jesus. And Jesus' sound can be capsulated in what we would call the gospel. Your Bible is also known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to our text. Galatians 1. Paul's concerned about the sound of the gospel in the lives of the Galatian believers. Verses 6 to 10, let's just read them. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. I want you to hear those words. You're deserting and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort. We talked about that some last Sunday. Distort the gospel of Christ, the sound of Jesus, his message in the earth. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul has this great urgency, this great concern for the churches in the area called Galatia. He's worried about this distorted gospel that's being spread by a group of of, um, Jewish believers known as Judaizers. And they were augmenting the gospel. They were adjusting the gospel. They were tweaking the gospel um, to to say what the gospel didn't say. And, And Paul says they were distorting it. They were making the gospel have a different sound, a distorted sound. And that different sound created a different gospel. And his concern was that if you give ear for very long to a distorted sound and to a different gospel, you're vulnerable to deserting the gospel. For the gospel to cease to be effective in your life, to walk away from the gospel, to to lose the gospel on some level. Paul knew that A different gospel was going to produce a different sound and this different sound. Any sound that isn't the sound of Jesus will always be man-centric, will always be self-centric. Only the gospel itself will always be Christ-centric. Anytime we come off of the message of the gospel and we begin to add things, we begin to make it the gospel plus anything else. And, and last week, I don't know how many of you did the little devotional, but we talked about some of the things that we tend to add, not uh, unknowingly even, not, not intentionally trying to do anything that would be damaging or destructive. but we take our traditions and our heritage and our preferences and our circumstances and our culture and we add them to and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once we do that, it becomes distorted and it becomes what Paul would call, at that point, a different gospel. And then he gives, verse 10's an interesting verse. It almost feels like it doesn't fit in the narrative, but he's making an important point. He says that all of this, really, the sound that you're listening to, the sound you're making, it all comes down to being dependent upon who you want to please in life, who you're out to please in life. He's saying that your audience determines the sound. The audience you want to please, the audience you want to get approval from, determines the sound you make. And he applies it to himself. He says, What do you think I'm doing? You think I'm just going after the approval of man? You think I'm out to just please you? If he wanted to, he could have written a different letter that would have just tickled the ears of the Galatian believers, but he's not out to please man. He's not looking for their approval. In fact, he says that that if I set out to please man, if that's the goal, if that's my intention, if that's my audience that I want to please, then I, at that moment, I cease to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I cease to be a true servant of the gospel, and I begin producing out of my life a different sound. If we're going to live a high-fidelity life, it means we have to get his sound right. And getting his sound right At the very beginning, at very the foundation of it means we have to get the gospel right. We have to get the gospel right. It's foundational and it's irreplaceable. You know, there's some things in Scripture that that we don't have to get right. That that should give you some relief. There's some things in Scripture that we just don't have to get right. There's some things that God leaves or puts in his Scripture and in his Word that are still somewhat clouded. There's some things he puts in his word that are a little mysterious to us, and, and we wrestle with them, and we debate them, and and there's there's scholarly work on both sides of uh, of, of some issues and some topics, but we and and when you strip it all the way to the bottom line, it doesn't really. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it, but you don't have to be right. You don't have. To, for example, which what is right, Calvinism? Or Arminianism? See, w- which is right? Are, are we just eternally secure or not? Are, are we once saved, always saved, or can we forfeit our salvation? Pick a side. You probably had those debates. I, when I was in Bible school, we'd stay up in, to the wee hours of the morning, sitting in the hallways debating these things, thinking we were such Bible students. Don't ask me about that now. Tribulation and rapture of the church. When? Pre, mid, post. Can I tell you something? It's okay to have the debate. It's okay to have an opinion. And you should. Study scripture. Come up with your own opinion, but understand you don't have to be right. You know how freeing that is? You don't have to be right. And if you want to be right to the point where you add it to the gospel, it's a different sound. It's a distorted sound. How about universal or limited atonement? Now, those are big words. You may not, maybe you never even heard of that before. But here's the question that it, it, it begs, that argument. Did Jesus die for all men and women? Or did he only die for those that he foreknew would be saved? Did he shed, who did he shed his blood for? And I've had the debate. And I've had the argument. And I can argue both sides. But you know what? You don't have to be right. Because at the end of the day, whichever way you want to take, at the end of the day, it doesn't affect my life. It doesn't change my life. Because the Great Commission is still the Great Commission over my life that I'm going to out and make disciples because I'm not Jesus. And so I don't even know who he saves is going to save and not save. My job stays the same. You don't have to be right. Second coming. When? How? Why? Who, Who? Where? Is, is it the same as the rapture? Is it the com- same event as the rapture or is it a separate event? Let's fight about that. Let's build churches on different street corners and that will divide us and that will be war distinctive and why they're wrong and we're right. You know, sometimes we're just worry too much about being right. There's some things in scripture that we don't have to be right. And I'll tell you, there's some things in Scripture that I think, some of these things, I think on the other side, right. when, we're, when we're perfected in Christ yeah. and we're out of this place, we're going to look back and say, none of us are right. Yeah. <laughs> right. We don't think that as we, we don't add that. We have choice A and choice B. We don't ever think there's a choice C. Right. Right. I'm getting crazy. Yeah. See, you don't have to be right. Let's get real practical. What if you can't recite the 66 books of the Bible in order? What if if I point at you, you can't stand up and and tell me the names of the 12 apostles? What, what What if you can't spell Mephibosheth? Maybe you don't even know who he is. It's not an important, I'm not saying we shouldn't be students, I'm not saying we shouldn't study the word and always be expanding and growing in our pursuit of the word of God. And even wrestling with things that, that seem to not have an answer. The practice is good, the study is good. I'm just saying that you don't have to be right in order to go to heaven. You don't have to be right. In order to reflect and replicate and make his sound in the earth. But can I tell you something? You have to have the gospel right. You have to, we have to have the gospel right. Because if you get the gospel wrong, everything you build on top of it's gonna be skewed. Everything you build on top of it is gonna be slanted. We're gonna miss who he is or where he's from or why he came or what he did for us. It's gonna be skewed, it's gonna be just a little off. You can build the, the most beautiful house. You can build the largest, most luxurious house. You can build a house that people will drive by and just say, oh, what it must be like to, to have that house, to live in that kind of house. And, and it could impress everybody. But can I tell you something? If it has a bad foundation, it's in constant peril of sinking, of cracking, of collapsing. Doesn't matter how it looks on the outside. If it doesn't have footers, that can handle and withstand all the conditions and situations and climates of life it's imperable it's in peril and that's what the gospel is. the gospel's that foundation and there are signs that we're getting the gospel wrong in his church there's signs that we're getting it wrong according to a study by the gospel coalition and through Arizona Christian University. Over half of Christian adults, Christian adults, believe that if a person is generally good or does good enough things during their life, they'll earn a place in heaven. And that's accepted by more than 50% of those adults who profess to be Christians. That's another gospel. Do you understand? That's a different sound. Only one-third of Christian adults believe that a person who who goes to heaven by confessing their sins and embracing Jesus, only one-third believe that to get to heaven involves confessing sin and believing Christ as your Lord and Savior. One-third. Not of the world, of Christians. That's a different sound. See, the church has some foundational cracks that need to be addressed. You know, the church is... Has made, has made some different sounds, or even over recent history, debating about the reality of hell, that there's not a burning hell anymore, that it's just figurative language. It's just God trying to make a point, but it's not a reality. The universality of faith. Christians are starting to believe that, well, Christianity is a way. But it's not the only way. As long as you really, whatever you believe, as long as you really believe it and you try to be good and not hurt other people, you're going to go to heaven because all roads lead to God. And that's not secularism saying that. It's Christians buying into a different gospel, presenting a different gospel. In the church of today, in many settings, social justice has replaced evangelism. We feed and clothe and educate and, uh, and we should do all that, but that's all we do. People come in, they go out, we touch them, we meet them, no mention of Jesus. No, no mention of, of trying to get, get into their life so that you can bring the gospel message. We did, we did what Jesus would do, because Jesus would feed people. He would clothe people. Jesus would help the disenfranchised, no doubt about it, but he would also leave a deposit in their spiritual life as well. The church is becoming more concerned about being politically correct than being holy. Holiness has slid down on the scale of things that are important. And in many settings within the church, political correctness has risen of that mentality and that understanding and philosophy of life. Those are all different sounds. We can't lose sight of the gospel, folks. We can't afford to lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ in its purity. It's the centerpiece of human history. It's a game changer. It's the greatest event that's ever happened. There's nothing more important. There's nothing that's ever made a greater impact on mankind. And the eternal destiny of every human being rests on their acceptance or rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's charged us with the proclaiming of it. So it takes me back to my original question. What is the gospel? Well, let's, let's try and go through this quickly. Some answer, it's a message. And you're right. You'd be right. Some want to be more impressive and they, and they break out the Greek. You know, it means the good news. And you're right. Some would say, well, the whole Bible is the gospel because the whole Bible is about Jesus. And you would not be wrong. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything in here somehow points and relates to him. The Old Testament points forward and the New Testament points back and they all meet At Jesus Christ. But what's the core of the story? It's all his story. But what's the core? What's the central issues for the gospel to be the gospel? What are the pieces or parts of the story that the gospel ceases to be the gospel if they weren't there? And I want to use the remaining time I have to give you those essentials as as I believe them to be. And there's eight of them. And I'll try not to... (laughs) Linger on any one of them. But I'm hoping that through this, if there's a drive, I don't know that you're going to hear anything new today. I hope you're not. And, and, and if you are, then, then this message is, is doubly for you. But what I hope happens is there's a rekindling of our excitement and enthusiasm about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we take basic principles of our faith and we move on from them or they become common to us, and there's nothing common about the gospel. It's the power of God to save people from death to life. There's nothing common about that. Okay, so so let's just go through them. Number one, Jesus is God. Let's start there. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He has all the character, all the attributes that God has. He existed before creation. He's he's uncreated. He's self-existing. He's he's eternal. All the omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, all the omnis, he's that. In fact, we we already read out of John, the first chapter, he's, he's the cause of creation. It says that there wasn't anything made without him, that everything that was made was made by him. And so when we think of Jesus, we have to take him outside of that Sunday school figure. We have to take him outside of just a historical fact. We have to take him outside of just being a a religious leader or the founder of our faith or a a, um, exemplary teacher, a, a wise rabbi. We have to move way beyond that. He is God. He is the sovereign God, holy, perfect, pure, righteous, loving, compassionate, just. He's all God. He is all God. He is the second person of the triune God. And we start there. Who is Jesus? He's the, he is the gospel. And first and foremost, he's God. All right. Number two, he became a man. We know that he, he became a man. We, we celebrate Christmas every year with, with, with great fanfare and, and ought to. John, again, the Word became flesh. The Word who was with God and was God, God, became flesh. What does that really mean? He's born of a virgin. I don't understand all the ramifications of that reality, and I can't dig too deep into the topic, but we need to understand he became a man, and as a man, he was fully human and fully divine, simultaneously, crucial, Scholars call that the hypostatic union. Simultaneously, completely, 100% human, 100% divine. Not part of each. Wasn't half of one and half of another that made him whole. He was two complete nature in one person. In one single same person. Well, what's it mean then? The Philippians talked about Well, he emptied himself. So doesn't that mean he took off his deity? No. Jesus Jesus couldn't take off his deity if he wanted to. He is God. He could never not be God. He could never exempt himself from being God. But my simplest and best explanation in, in You know, thirty seconds of time is when it says he emptied himself. He it talks about his glory. He came as a man, and coming as a man, he set aside his glory, his appearance, so that we could accept him, so that we could see him. You know, the glory of God. I can't really describe or know fully what that looks like—the Shekinah glory of God. But I know that it rested on Jesus in his deity, as God, he. He, was, he lived in glory. His essence was glory. He had to set that aside. Otherwise, we would not have been able to see him, to recognize him, to know. Remember Moses? Moses just came down from the mountain, and they couldn't look at him because his face shone with the glory of God and so bright that he had to wear a veil over his face. And that was a human being carrying the reflection. Imagine the glory of God. Imagine, and, and we would never have been able to look at him. We would never been able to to, to um, understand him. We would never have been able to receive him as as a human, as, as someone who is like us. So he laid his glory aside so that we could see him as a man. Jesus, listen, when Jesus was on the earth, I know what some of the old art pieces, church religious art pieces look like, but Jesus didn't glow. I, if that, I hope to ruin your bubble, but Jesus didn't glow. He did. If Jesus, if that was his nature, that, that as a man, the, the, he had this glow around him all of the time, then when they came to, to arrest him in the garden, Jesus wouldn't have had to kiss him. He just said, go for the guy that's glowing. Get him. Jesus didn't hover. Right? Sometimes we get these pictures that, that Jesus was, whoo. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't, he didn't hover. above. The, again, people would say, well, well, which one in that crowd, which one are you saying is the Messiah? Well, find the one whose, whose sandals don't have any scuff marks because he's, he's always hovering three inches above the ground. See, Jesus laid his... Glory side so that we could receive him and see him and relate to him as a man. But as a man, he was still fully God. At the incarnation, he put on manhood. He didn't take off anything. Got it? Okay. He didn't cease to be God when he came to earth. And he, get this, he didn't cease to be man when he went back to heaven. Jesus is still fully human and fully divine. Seated at the right hand of God the Father, make an intercession for you. By his humanity, we were able to identify with him. By his humanity, he was able to assume on himself the responsibility for our sin and be the sacrificial lamb that was required for our forgiveness and our redemption. By his divinity... He has the authority to forgive us of our sins because only God can forgive sins, and he is God. Timothy, Paul writes Timothy, great statement, and it combines these two, these two natures. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He writes to Colossian believers, and he puts it this way, in him, in Jesus Get this: all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. That's the best description I can give you of this hypostatic union. In Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead in a body. He's a great God. He's a great God. Number three, he lived a sinless life. He lived a sin, as a man. He lived a sin. He was the Bible says he was tempted in all ways, just as we are, but without sin. Tempted in all ways. That's Hebrews 4. The father, the father didn't shield him from life. The Father exposed him to all the things that we would we would be exposed to. Never minimize how hard Jesus' life was. Well, he was the son of God. He just, you know, just that stuff just didn't even affect him. It didn't even bother him, no. He was also fully man, and in his humanity, he experienced being a man. He he felt the same temptations and pull of sin that you do and that I do. He felt those same same, promptings inside of his flesh as a man that that we do. We we know of of his being led into the wilderness, and and, um, the devil himself tempted him and and trying to draw him out. He He wouldn't take the bait. We we see the 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 um, that that impulse that sometimes drives us that, that wants to protect ourselves or, or wants to go for what's flashy or 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 shiny or new or or you know gratifying in the moment. He had all those same possible thoughts, but never gave in to them. Never allowed them to control his life. He modeled that for us as a man. Which means we as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, even though we're just human, we always have the ability to say no to temptation. Do you understand that? We always can say no to sin. No matter how strong that pull may seem or may feel in the moment, there is the resource of the Holy Spirit inside of you that gives you the power to say no. That's, that's a little harsh because it makes us responsible and we don't like responsibility. But every time we sin, every time you sin, every time I sin, it's by choice. The devil cannot make you do it. Amen? Okay, you're still with me. Number four, he died on a cross as payment for our sin. We, we know about the cross, the crucifixion. We know the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. The only payment for sin we also know is, is innocent blood. That's why we couldn't save ourselves because our blood isn't innocent because we're sinners. Because sin has already corrupted who we are. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, innocent blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's why throughout the Old Testament you see all the blood being shed on altars of goats and lambs and bulls and and oxen. And then Jesus comes. And he comes as the sacrificial lamb of God to be the one and last and final payment for sin for all men for all time. He offers himself as that perfect substitutionary sacrifice. It has to be personally believed and accepted for it to be efficacious in our life. But Jesus covered it all. Have you ever wondered, when you think about the picture of the crucifixion, why did his death have to be so painful? I get, okay, he wanted to come and he wanted to shed his blood. He wanted to save us and, and, and offer redemption. But why did it have to be so excruciating? Why did it have to unfold the way it did? And I don't know that I have a true answer for you. I can give you some possibilities. It was prophesied, number one, Isaiah and Psalm 22. Isaiah 52, Psalm 22. They they prophesy the the. What Jesus was going to experience. Um, Isaiah 53 gives us an inclination that, that this was, it was the Father's will, that, that somehow it served the purposes of God, that the, the crucifixion unfolded the way that it unfolded. Um, perhaps it, through his humiliation, it, it would allow us, it would allow people then to, to Look at him and identify with him, that he put himself beneath us. He assumed the lowest position so that he could raise all of us. So, so no one was exempt or would think of themselves as less than, than someone God would give attention to or, or care about. Perhaps it was to show the depth of the depravity of sin in God's eyes. How ugly sin is in the Father's eyes and what. It did to us and our relationship with him, the severity of it. Perhaps because he knew that we were going to suffer. We're going to live in a fallen world and sometimes that was going to cause us to suffer. We're going to be touched by some of the brokenness of the world and and we would experience suffering so we could always look to our Savior and recognize that he's always suffered more. He, He set a standard that, by God's grace, we're never going to match that. You're never going to have the sins of the world put on you and know what that is and the suffering of that moment. So it's to encourage us, and it's to take excuses off the table saying, well, you know, I, I'm, gosh, I'm, God's asked me to do more than Jesus did. It's simply not possible. Maybe it's just to show the depth and extent of his love. When you look at what he went through, Because of love, because he loved you, he wanted to to emphasize, he wanted to put exclamation points on how much he desperately is in love with you. You may come up with other reasons of your own of why his death had to be so horrendous, so painful. But I encourage you, don't make the crucifixion a historical event. Personalize it. He died for you. He died because of you. He died so that you would know his love. You know, sometimes in life we look at, well, how do we, how do we identify that people, people love us? You know, so we, we go back to, you know, we, maybe you look at your wedding ring. Or you go through some photo albums or you pull out cards and notes and love letters that someone exchanged with you. Or we, you, know, you, you think about birthdays and holidays, anniversaries and, and, and vacation times. And you say, this is, this is love. When we look at all those things and it, it shows us the depth of relationship we've had with people. But when you look at God, when you look at Jesus and say, how do I know he loves me? You look to a cross. You look at a cross. He says, that's how much. That's how much he loves you. He died on a cross. Number five, he's buried in a tomb. It was important for Jesus to go to the grave. Remember, nothing was out of control. Jesus was orchestrating all of it. Not only his crucifixion, but his death, and that he would be buried, that he would be put in a tomb. He knew that. He orchestrated, he caused that and planned for that day. It was part of his plan because he had work to do. See, up until then, the grave had legal grounds to hold the soul of a person when they died, because of sin. The Bible says the authority of the grave is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So when a person dies, all the devil has to do is point to the law. And because all have sinned, the grave had the right to say, you're mine. You, you, you have to stay right here and had legal grounds to hold a person's soul in a grave. Even the righteous dead, the Bible teaches and shows us that even the righteous dead were held in a place called Sheol because atonement hadn't been paid. The, the price for sin hadn't been, hadn't been um, paid yet. And so the, the grave held the souls of all men. Who had died. Our sin made us violators of God's law. We became debtors to the law. And so at death, the debt, that debt became the authority the grave had to hold us there. But thank God death had a problem when the body of Jesus showed up in the grave. That's why he had to be buried. Because Jesus never violated the law, which means he was without sin, which means he had no debt that he owed So the devil had nothing to accuse him of, and he had no grounds on which to restrain him. So death couldn't touch him, and the grave couldn't hold him. So in the grave, I want you to see the picture, why it was important that Jesus was buried. In the grave, he stands up, and the Bible says he preaches freedom to those who are waiting for their redemption. All these righteous dead who had been on hold, if you would. Jesus now is in the tomb, and he preaches freedom to them. Moses sees the son of God and hears the message and says, oh, there you are. Abraham stands up and says, I knew you'd come. David, he just starts singing and dancing. I mean, that's what David does. Jonah, remember, he's the grumpy prophet. He's over in a corner and under his breath, he's saying, "What's well, about time. All the saints, Joshua, Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah, Esther, Ruth, the list goes on and on and on. Hear this message. Jesus had to go in the grave. He had to go and be buried because the Bible says that when he rose, other graves split open and saints came up out. And it says they were seen walking in the city. That had to be a trip. That had to be a trip. But that's the power of our God. And had he not gone to the grave, we would still be held captive by the grave when we died. He rose from the dead physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. On the third day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know the account. Sunday morning, the women come to anoint his body. They find the stone rolled away. A couple of angels announce the fact he's not here. He is, he is risen. The empty tomb is God's answer to the devil's mistake, his mistake in victory at the cross. The devil thought he won. The empty tomb was the devil's, was God's answer to the devil. Listen, I promise you, if the devil had it to do over again, he'd make sure that Jesus never shed a drop of blood. See, the devil knows now what he didn't know then. If he had to do it over again, he'd make sure that Jesus was never beaten, never whipped, crown of thorn never pierced his scalp. He'd have made sure there were no nails in his side, or in his hands, in his feet, or a spear in his side. He'd made sure he never hung on a cross and made doubly sure he never went into the grave. He thought he won. He knows something different now. He's learned what he didn't know then. He does know now that the cross wasn't a death certificate. That the cross was simply a promissory note signed with the blood of Jesus. The resurrection was the receipt. That Jesus gives to mankind who will believe in him and says, paid in full. Paid in full. you got to see that picture. That what Jesus did on the cross was completed when he walked out of the tomb. That what he promised and what we hope would happen by his sacrifice on the cross was in reality fulfilled and accomplished by his walking out of the grave. And I hope you have your receipt today. I hope that you're not carrying the promissory note. I hope that you have the receipt paid in full because of the blood of Jesus that covers your life, that has redeemed your life, that has bought you back from the enemy, and you'll belong to him forever. Number seven, his return to heaven, the ascension. Jesus physically ascends to the earth. You can read it in, in Acts. It marked the end of his earthly ministry. It, it, it said that he had accomplished all that he came to do, it was the beginning of his new ministry in heaven, being our high priest, being our mediator. It symbolized the father's pleasure with the son, his exaltation of the son. It was visible validation that his word and his work can be trusted. We can trust this man because he was ascended back to heaven. And so everything he said and did here is guaranteed It was followed by a promise. As he ascended, the angels said, the way you see him going, there's more to come. He's coming. He's coming back. Brings me to my last point. He's coming again, the second coming of Christ, where Jesus comes to earth again. You can read about it in Revelation 19. The same way he ascended, he's gonna return. After the great tribulation, at a time of his own choosing, He comes with his armies, both angelic and saints. The whole earth will see him. At the rapture, the whole earth doesn't see him. At the second coming, they all see him. He'll judge all unrighteousness. He'll deal with the devil and his forces once and for all. Saints will experience the power of a physical resurrection. His invisible kingdom will become visible and established in the earth. The rapture happens in a moment. In the tweaking of the eye, the Bible says, second coming comes to stay. Second coming is going to take some time. Second coming is going to take eternity when we now are joined with him forever. Whatever that means, and all that that means, God has it orchestrated. Let's stand. This is the gospel message. This is the sound of the gospel. The gospel doesn't make bad people good. It gives dead people life. It doesn't make good people better. It makes guilty people blameless. This gospel. It's not only the good news we believe. Okay? The gospel isn't just a message that we hear and receive and believe. It certainly is that. But if you believe the gospel, it's also the message we're commissioned to carry. It's the message we're commissioned to share with others. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy gave a great message and he talked about your story. And even gave practical opportunity after service around. Lunch tables to share parts of our story. And that's such a valid reality of of how to open conversations with others, friends, family, with unbelievers, of starting just to share your story as a Christian, your journey, those special moments and events that you know God has touched and orchestrated. But understand when we share our story, your story should never be autobiographical. Your story should never end with you. Your story should be more than you. Your story is an on wrap to tell his story. Your story is just a teaser. It's just to open the door. It's just to connect and identify with someone, to to whet their appetite. Because you can share your story and not share the gospel. the gospel isn't shared until there's a a god who loves mankind until that god becomes a man until that man dies till that man rises till that man ascends till that man promises he's coming again till that the message the full message of the gospel presented we're moving into a time of church history i believe that will affect this church, and it is affecting this church already, at least on the leadership side of how we're thinking and planning and projecting. The Holy Spirit puts emphasis on different areas at different times, according to his own purposes and will. And he is right now, and everywhere I look, I see it reflecting back. That's how I know it's him. This, the, the issue of discipleship. Now, that's not new. We've given much to discipleship. We've given ourselves to discipleship, of learning, of studying, of being taught, of of growing, of of being nurtured, of becoming more mature in Christ. That's part of of being a disciple. But the emphasis the Holy Spirit is doing now is expanding and broadening that and saying that your emphasis can't stop at being a disciple. The focus of your life can't stop at being a disciple you have to now move on with the whole teaching of Scripture. And the whole teaching is, my disciples go out and make disciples. Which I get excited about, because if the Holy Spirit is giving that emphasis and speaking that word and breathing that word into His church, if the church will hear it, and we will become active in learning what that means... And how practically we can accomplish that commission task of how do we make disciples. What it tells me, the fact that God is highlighting that, is that there may be something around the corner that looks a little bit like revival. There may be something that he has planned, that he has in mind. Where forget about, if you haven't yet, forget about Washington fixing anything. And even if they could fix things, they can't change human hearts. God can. The gospel can. And he took his gospel and he handed it to you. And he handed it to me and he said, Go make disciples with this. You don't need all the other stuff. You don't need a lot of other stuff to make disciples. You need the gospel. You don't have to go out and buy a bus. You don't have to go to Bible school for 20 years. You just need the gospel. And here's the good news. You already have it. You already have it. You have everything you need. He's equipped his church. And I believe the future's bright. You don't hear that a lot today. You don't hear that reflected in our news media, in our culture today, that our future's bright. And maybe if you look at it just from a human perspective, you you might even be tempted to agree with it, but I say as, as the church of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you the future's bright if the church will hear and obey. The future's bright. How many wouldn't love to see people coming to the Lord? How many wouldn't love to see some of your loved ones, some of your family, some of your neighbors coming to the Lord, some of your kids coming back, some of your parents coming to the Lord? It's the gospel. It's the sound of Jesus in the earth. We don't have to add anything to it. We just have to present it. Because it's not how you do it that makes a difference. The gospel has the power within itself. The presentation (laughs) of the gospel, the word itself has the power to save. To convict and convince and save us all. But how will they know if no one ever tells them? Amen. I've gone over time. I apologize, but I got it late too, so that's my excuse. How many love Jesus? How many love the gospel of Jesus Christ? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you challenge and pull on our hearts. And Lord, there's no conviction here. There's freedom here. There's cause for celebrating and rejoicing because We are recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God, the life of Christ lives inside of us. And Lord, the future is bright because you're in our future. So God, we want to take this gospel and first we want to be eternally daily, moment by moment, grateful and thankful for it. The gospel isn't something that we receive and then move on from. The gospel is not just a starting line or a starting point. The gospel is the lane we run in. The gospel is the the borders and banks of our life. Everything about life has to align with that gospel. Keep us from ever trying to reverse that, to adjust the gospel to align with our preferences. But, Lord, help us to humbly always stay in our lane and let your gospel bring us to full maturity in you. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your hand in working and dealing with this church. I thank you that even in the report we heard today about maybe some natural, physical kinds of, material kinds of changes that are taking place, Lord, that's just underlined. That's just symbolism of a much deeper, broader expansion that you want to do in this place. So God, what we do is we say, have your will. Have your will. And help us to hear and obey and follow. So God, I thank you for your word. I pray you bless it today. I pray you seal it inside the heart and mind of your people. Let it bring fruit for your glory, for their good. Dismiss us with your peace and your grace in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you. So glad you're here today. Take time to greet one another before you go.